Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast. Coming up, we look at some 80s classics now on Blu-ray, from The Evil Dead, Shogun Assassin, to Escape from New York. And joining me for the podcast this month, we have Chris, Mark and Simon. Good evening, guys. Hello. Hello. Evening, Nice Phil. to be back. And of course, this is the movies review edition of the podcast. So we've got about four films to get through in this edition. And we're going to kick things off with a horror classic that Chris has just reviewed recently. So, uh, Chris, we're talking Evil Dead. Yeah, absolute um, infamous child of the video nasties. In fact, the one that probably kicked it off in the UK you know, with such... You know, tabloid venom and spite. Sam Raimi's dream project, three years in the making or thereabouts, shot on 16mm, blown up to 35mm, uh, and then had numerous, in fact, you can't possibly count how many releases this has had on home video and DVD and whatever. Anchor Bay being the one who put out the most of them. It's the age-old story, five teenagers, American you know, apple pie-eating teens, venture out the Tennessee woods and find themselves in a shack with a long-lost tape recording, um, which they shouldn't play. They really shouldn't play this because it's going to unleash the Ancient Ones, very H.P. Lovecraft-inspired ancient demons, which are then going to possess and, you know, make these people do rather horrible things to themselves and then each other, rip their own flesh apart. Trees are going to rape women in the most absurd sequence you could possibly imagine, just there to really shock you and push another taboo boundary. Uh, the gore is phenomenal. For, for, you've got to remember, for the time this was made, and you know, absolute shoestring budget, and it was just the crew and the cast were all friends and relatives of each other, and it was just a labour of love, really. Arduous, you know, long shooting. They didn't really know what, they, what the hell they were doing. Flying by the seat of their pants, and they created, you know, an absolute horror masterpiece. And it is a masterpiece. It's not got the best script in the world. It's got barely any story. But what it did do, it created an entire mythology out of nothing. You know, I mentioned Lovecraft before. It's definitely owes its uh, owes a great debt to Lovecraft. Uh, but whereas Lovecraft just described his monsters with you know complete, you know, vivid, lurid descriptions, you didn't really find out what they did to anybody. But this this shows everything, and it is you know it was cut down in the UK, but it was still extremely explicit graphically gory and nasty and became infamous at the darling of uh, every school kid around at the time because this was numero uno on the uh, the DPP hit list for banned videos. You couldn't wait to get your hands on this one and it didn't disappoint. But not only that, it was bloody scary as well. There were so many shocks and, you know, uh, jumpy moments in this that you were hanging off the ceiling with such regularity that, you know, it was agony really. And of course it created an absolute genre icon in Bruce the Chin Campbell. Uh, as Ash, you know, the, the guy who starts off as the most, the weakest of the bunch, he can't do a damn thing. He falls over all the time when, when the demons are attacking. He can't act quick enough when something's, you know, about to destroy somebody else. Hit her, Ash, hit her. And he just stands there like a complete lemon. But 
you know, he's going to, the swing shift will turn and he will become um, an absolute deadite basher in that movie and the next two movies, which Evil Dead 2 kind of reinvented the wheel. They tried to make it more, the first film again, but more technically advanced and superior in every way and created another classic, Army of Darkness, the third one. Um, it's the, the homage to Ray Harryhausen, stop motion skeleton armies. Well, they're not stop motion, some of it is, but it's, it's a definite ode to Harryhausen. A lot more comedy, you know, arrives in, this, in the sequels. But this one, although gallows humour is certainly there, this, this, is, this is the horror film of the trilogy. This, this is down and dirty and very, very nasty. It's grim, it's frightening. When the women, because it also changed, you know, genre conventions. Mostly, you know, at this particular time, you had Stalk and Slash was highly prevalent in, in Hollywood and all the video nasties that were out there. Women were being butchered and running away and falling over and the mass killer would catch them. But this time, the women became the monsters. They were first to go and they turned with absolute vengeance upon the two guys there, the poor beleaguered fellas. And they were demonically nasty. And they had a hell of a sense of humour. You've got Cheryl, Ash's sister, the first one to be possessed, ends up in the cellar. The ubiquitous um, you know, face at the trap door, laughing and giggling and hissing at them and issuing threats. If anything, that's probably the most scary thing about it. It's the fact that the women, when they become possessed, just love to taunt and to mock their would-be victims. You know, it's such gleeful uh, nastiness it, you, and macabre. You, you, you've got to love it. Just got to love it. So anyway, it's finally come out on Blu-ray. We'd already had the two sequels in some lackluster releases, Edge Enhancements and DNR, you know, up the wazoo and back. This one, a lot of high hopes for it. Was Anchor Bay going to, you know, pull out all the stops and actually give it the, uh, the transfer it deserved? Were they going to mess around with the audio like they've done so many times in the past? What way are they going to do with this? Well, they, they come up trumps because this, this, folks, looks fantastic. You've got two versions on, on this disc, both of them endorsed by Sam Raimi. You have his original 1.33 full frame transfer and you have the 1.85 which a lot of us are a lot more familiar with now the 1.85 was always problematic in the past because it just wasn't the composition was slightly off you'd have too much headroom you'd have the, the, just the, the objectivity was slightly off that that's all you can say about it you know but now unbelievably they've gone in and a little fairy dust and Necronomicon magic, they've actually sorted out the 185 as well, so that is now better composed. It's quite hard to say which is the best one. Purists would go for the 1.33, and that's what I certainly loved most of all when I first got this disc. Although, having cross-referenced it and gone back and watched both versions and flicked between the two, I don't know, I think I'm coming down more on the side of the 185, which flies in the face of my written review. But, you know, but the, the beauty of this American release uh, is that you, know, you can actually, you've got the two of them there, you know, to to compare to you know compare and contrast, and you know the high def print looks absolutely amazing. There's so much more detail in this. The grain is all there, so you've got no DNR issues at all. Um, edge enhancements, if there is any, is com completely minimal. In fact, I don't even think there is any. The colours, there is a slightly different colour palette to it, but again, nothing that's wrong. It looks it looks good to me. It's well saturated. Uh, the colours are, are vivid without being you know normal high def pop in your face sort of style the whole thing looks like film and um, but the clarity the detail the depth to it i noticed a couple of things with the um the 185 you've actually had a lot more three-dimensionality to it 
particularly scenes where you've got sh- you're looking from Cheryl's point of view down in the, in the trapdoor at the other cast members walking around a cabin, and the camera will sort of pan around, and you can definitely see there's you know that kind of lovely three dimensionality and depth to it that you, you like from the format. Even on you know this was a 16 mil low, ultra low budget you know film stock, and you, you're getting this this kind of glory from it now, and it, it just looks amazing. And of course, you've got the sound. What have Anchor Bay done with the sound? Well, again, a checkered past, you know, with this label because the, how often are they put these completely bogus bugaboo, you know, 5.1 or 7.1 mixes on old mono films that just don't deserve it? They've done signal stretching. They've put created weird and wonderful things that flash around the back. You know, it, it it's never worked or very rarely worked. So okay, we've now got a fantastic image which does justice to the, um, you know, as the director intended sort of tag that they've given it. How did the sound fare? Amazingly well. You can't believe this, can you? Amazingly well. It actually works. You've got full surround on it. It's in Dolby True HD for the American one. The, I think the up-and-coming Sony one for the UK is a DTS HD, Master Audio. Um, but the True HD sounds phenomenal. Very clear, crystal, crystal clear. Right, now, a problem with this movie has always been the dialogue the, the way it was filmed, the way it was structured, the way that people are positioned on, on the set, and the sound design. The, people are screaming, there's chainsaws, there's lots of screaming, hissing, and impacts, and you've got Joseph DeLuca's score. You know, it's really, the whole thing is buzzing with activity. So dialogue can often be muffled, subdued, lost amid the, um, you know, the hullabaloo. Now, that's still there. That's still prevalent. If anything, it sounds a little bit clearer in, in those particular segments, but, you know, you've still got to expect that. This is the way the film has always been. Other than that, the score, as I say, is amazingly clear. This was a very highly string-led um, score from Joe, Joe um, DeLuca and v- very sort of creepy medieval style. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of kudos, that score, but, you know, people should really pay attention to it. It adds so much to the movie. But the strings, they're sizzling across that. It's just very, very well done. I've got the CD of that score, and it sounds nothing compared to the, you know, the translation on this disc. Uh, sound effects, you've got tons of stuff going on there. There's rear activity, there's ambience, creaking trees, you know, birds hooting and all that sort of stuff, uh, scratching of floorboards. It, it, there's a lot of stuff there, and it's been picked out well. None of it sounds stupid. None of it sounds, oh, let's boost this up a bit. Let's pep this up here. It actually sounds genuine and part and parcel of that sound design. And it comes across with real aggression and vigour. Tremendously well done. Uh, massive thumbs up there. Who'd have thought it? Anchor Bay, you know, played a blinder. Um, and this version, again, we've had so many versions of this, all with loads of extras. You've had glorious commentary tracks before. I mean, you can't beat having Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi sitting together discussing the movie. You know, it's a laugh riot usually, usually. This brand new commentary here, and it is a brand new one, um, is not quite the laugh a minute you expect it to be. It's okay, but it's like these people have now seen the film and talked about it on commentary so many times. What are we going to talk about now? So it's like they've had an agenda beforehand. Robert Tappert's there as well. They've got a a focus this time on what they're doing. They're talking about the actual production of the movie, the financing of it, and more importantly, the distribution of, of this movie, which was, you know, groundbreaking at the time. And that's a bit of history. We've got Palace Pictures in the UK. They managed to secure a deal with them. Palace Pictures break with tradition and release the movie at the flicks and on you know home video at the same time. <gasps> oh, that was a bit naughty, wasn't it? But it brought in a lot of revenue for them. 
So the film got humongous, you know, word of mouth and, you know, massive popularity straight away. It, it was uh, controversial, which obviously helped. So they discuss all this. When the laughs come, there's a, and there's a few of them, don't get me wrong, but it's far more subdued than you expect from previous tracks from them. But it's still one for fans you can't possibly ignore there. Now, this release, that's all you've got on the actual HD disc. This release, for a limited period only, apparently, there's a special uh, DVD full of all the extra features. Not quite sure why that they've done that. Why can't they just put it all on the one thing? But anyway, that's what they've done. So on the other one, on this limited edition bonus DVD, you've got some documentaries. Uh, one by one, we will take you the untold saga of the evil dead, uh, which is, if I remember rightly, I only saw it the other week and I've forgotten. <laughs> Forgotten what that is. It's just the making of ret- retrospective making of, and it features a few other, you know, up and coming people like Eli Roth, who were, you know, completely, you know, besotted with the movie and obviously highly influenced by it, uh, discussing it. Sam's not there. Sam Raimi's not on it, but the cast, all the other cast are there. You have The Evil Dead, Treasures from the Cutting Room Floor. Now, this is a bit odd. This is actually almost the full movie again, but shown in, a, in consecutive, you know, film chronological order and it's just outtakes rehearsals deleted scenes shots from a different angle uh, but, you know and it just it's interesting to watch you know if, if you're a diehard fan a dead height dead height dead height diehard fan discovering the evil dead unconventional at the drive-in reunion panel makeup tests ladies of the evil dead meet bruce campbell most of this stuff is just panels of, of the cast sitting there discussing it with, with fans and Q&A sessions. Uh, always good to see, but a little bit repetitive. So, you know, there's, there's not going to be much you're going to learn from those bits, but it's, as I say, it's still nice to see. The Book of the Dead, the other pages, this is like an extended sequence of when Ash first discovers the, you know, bound in human flesh, inked in human blood, Book of the Dead down in the cellar. And he begins to turn the pages over and you see these fabulous illustrations this is just an extended version of that. So you're seeing a few more pages full of these, you know, lavishly gory illustrations. So that's quite nice to see. And you've got stills galleries and a theatrical trailer and TV spots. And that's about it, really, for the for this version of the Evil Dead. As I say, Sony are putting one out in the UK. Now, I'm a bit sketchy on the details of what's with this one, but I believe it doesn't have the 1.33 um, original um, aspect ratio. It just has the 185, and I'm not sure what extras there are on it at all. But there'll be something, I'm sure, because this version is region-coded, so you know fans need to bear that in mind if, you, if you're just region B locked, so you can't pick up this one. But wait for Sony's. But anyway, this gets a massive, massive, you know, ghoulish thumbs-up from me. Tremendous release, classic movie. It's one of those things that is timeless. Apart from his chords, a, a few, you know skanky hairdos from the 70s and you know it, the film doesn't really date the effects yeah they're a bit you know slapdash here and there you can see them the end of the marigold gloves as he crashed through the door and grabbed ash around the neck um you can see the, the stuck on prosthetics you know they're kind of more apparent now with, with a high def um, definition you know it's just a sad thing you kind of you kind of do spot that now but the showers of gore and, and a lot of it you know it's yeah, that's still pretty raw stuff. Still works for me. And, uh, of course, it's fully uncut, this version. Ah, and one other thing, he says, pointing in the air, ah, um, a few of the little tweaks that have been done. 
you always had Robert Tappert stood there beside, right at the start of the movie when they, when they first drive over that rickety bridge um, in the corner, extreme right of the frame, you had Robert Tappert standing there. Why shouldn't have been there? Was he directing them? Take that bridge, that bridge there. And he's now gone. Oh, what have they done there? They've digitally removed him for both versions, I hasten to add, uh, the 133 and the 185. Uh, is there any digital smearing left? Is there evidence? Is there like a, a Predator-style cloaking device where he once stood? No, nope, looks fantastic, very cleanly done. You wouldn't even know it, you wouldn't spot it. In fact, I didn't even spot it at all, and I knew he was standing there. It took, it took another couple of watchings, but I thought, oh God, he's not there. Nice one. It works. Whereas in the past, you know, you couldn't really say about uh, Jason the Argonauts, oh, they've taken the, um, you know, the wires out from the, the harpy sequence. Purists say, no, it's part of the charm. The Stormtrooper whacking his head on the, um, the door frame in Star Wars. Don't ever remove that because that's part of the charm. Well, that is because, you know, Stormtroopers can be clumsy, obviously. It's just a nice thing to see. But things that really aren't meant to be there, like, you know, a producer or an editor or a cameraman or whatever standing in frame, well, they're not meant to be there. So if you get the chance, take them out. And they've done it and it looks a treat. So Evil Dead, from me, get it. Join us. Wow. How long was that? 18 Fabulous. minutes. 18 minutes? Come on. Are you a fan then, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about that is, um, is that you always, in the years past, you know, Evil Dead, you get Evil Dead 2, and everyone loves that because it's so bloody funny. Ash really comes into his own. Bruce Campbell is so much more assured and mature in the role. The effects are so much better. It just it looks a better film, more polished. So you tend to, oh, I feel like a bit of Evil Dead tonight. I'll go for Evil Dead too. Yeah. But go back to this one because it's, it's tremendously well done. You've got to remember what these guys went through to, to, to put it on the screen, to put it together. And when you watch it, it, it was shot over, what, a couple of years or something? Whereas Evil Dead, yeah. was, Evil Dead 2 was shot more like a film. Whereas the first one, it was just these guys putting it all together and doing it. And, I mean, the, the, the famous bit is the holes in the door, isn't it? Yeah. Because they shot that over, you know, six months apart, so they didn't know where the holes were going to be. That's right. And it, but you wouldn't know that when you're watching the film, because the, uh-huh. that's the bit that always gets me. I, I mentioned this in the written review as well. You know when uh, you always see Ben Gardner's head come out the hole in the boat in Jaws? You've seen it a million times. You know the exact second when that head is going to appear and that lunatic dentist drill on John Williams' score is going to hit you. But you still jump out your seat because of the power of the sequence itself. Well, that sequence in Evil Dead is another one that always, always gets me. And I love watching it. I love watching people's reaction when they see it for the first time. Ash, you know, it all goes quiet. He's heard the footsteps on the roof. It's a great, great creepy little moment, that. And he, um, he puts the, uh, the, the extra shell in the, in the shotgun, remembers that. He suddenly sees the necklace he gave to Linda. He reaches down. Joe DeLuca's score turns soft and reflective and wistful, tragic. As he pulls this out, all of a sudden the score stops. The wind stops. Total silence. Ash begins to look up straight into the camera. But before his eyes meet yours, those hands come crashing through. And even though I've just described the exact second those hands come through, it gets me every, every single time. And I love it. I love the fact that they still do that. You know, the black magic is still there. One of the, um, one of the things you said was uh, age-old story of the five teenagers <laughs> getting lost in, the, lost in the woods or reading yeah. the thing. When was that done before? 
Well, well, what I mean by that is it's just it was so commonplace at that time to have teens straying into the woods. You'd have Friday the 13th. Well, you, you were about to have Friday the 13th. But, you know, the vogue of late 70s kids in summer camps, um, teens going off to isolated places to um, play cards and read comics and make love, you know, that sort of thing. And, and then meeting rather sticky ends. <laughs> you see what, you see, yeah, what, I, see what I did there? Yeah. Yeah, very clever, very clever. Uh, Another thing as well, I I'd forgotten um, that it was released at the cinema and on video at the same time. I'd completely yeah. forgotten that, um, well, and I'm I'm trying desperately to remember whether or not it was released in the cinema uncut. No, it was cut because I know on 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 home video it was uncut because it nope. was. Simon, I must must take umbrage with you, yeah, young, yeah, there, young man. Whoa, I couldn't say that at all, and could I? I just put my teeth back in. Hang on. Now, what happened was it played the London Film Festival, which was the year before the actual time it got a theatrical release, and that was fully uncut. Then the censor took umbrage with it for its general release, and and censored virtually every sequence in it. Every sequence of gore and violence was trimmed to some degree. Okay. And the version put out on video was exactly the same as what played at, at the cinemas. So it was still cut down. It was still exceptionally nasty. You, apart from Dawn of the Dead. Uh, really I saw it like uncut. That. Are you sure? Positive. I saw still... it uncut. Definitely. Because when it, when it came out again, there was cut to ribbons. Oh, it got cut again. Yeah. It, it was cut several times. It's had so many releases in the UK. It was cut on, on most successive occasions. Or rather, he put in like a version which had even more taken out before the censor even saw it. But no, Simon, when it played, the UK well, so cinema the, the unregulated release was cut. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, the version, the version we had on on home video and the version that played at the cinema screens, post the film festival, were all were the same. They were cut. Well, it's true as I'm riding this camel. No, it's true. Honestly, it's true. I, I got an uncut print of that from uh, Ramsey Campbell, the, the horror author Ramsey Campbell, and I got an uncut print of uh, Dawn of the Dead as well. Now, that was the American general release unrated version, not the, you know, the, the director's cut, and there's different cuts of that movie as well. But I, I got, see, the UK one of Dawn of the Dead was cut yeah, straight away, and quite a lot was taken out of it. Evil Dead was cut straight away after the film fest, and quite a lot was taken out of it. And I got these versions. This I'd be 12, 12, I think, when I got them off Ramsey Campbell. Um, nice one, Ramsey. Thanks a lot there. You know, you altered my life there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Corrupted me. Shouldn't say that, should I? That sounds really, really risque now. <laughs> <laughs> what was I doing hanging around at a horror author's house, <laughs> getting dodgy discs? <laughs> so I, I, I saw the uncut one fairly, fairly early on as well. But it, it was the American print, though. And it was, it, was, it was a shocker because virtually every sequence had, had been trimmed for the UK. It didn't rob it of its purely visceral quality. You know, it, the film still worked. In fact, if anything, the sequence where he, he smashes, he, he backhands Linda about three times when she's sitting there laughing at him. God, the, the laughter. It, you've got to admire like, how creepy is that? They're not even attacking him, just sitting there laughing at him. And his frustration, he just batters them. Well, in the UK version, he only hits her once. An initial one. In this version, he hits it like three times, and that, to be honest, that seems slightly a bit of overkill. It just it took the uh, brutality out of it. It became Tex Avery, became comic, you know, cartoon stuff. But that's what so, he loves, isn't it, Sam Raimi? He loves all that yeah. um, Three Stooges gear. You know, he exactly. loves all that stuff. So that's why it's in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not 
you know, saying it, it shouldn't be there. But when you've seen, this is a, this is actually a case where I'm not defending censorship. This is actually a case where the UK version trimmed down actually seems to have more of a sharp-edged effect on you because that one backhand or forehand slap that he gives it had more impact than in, in going bang, bang, bang. It just it dragged it out a bit more. Anyway, I, I much rather watch the uncut one. Don't get me wrong. And the other bit was the air, the, the hand coming through the air, the, the door frame. Uh, not the bit where he crashes through, but Ash is trying to shut the door and Cheryl sticks a hand through and holds a door frame and he smashes that pus-filled glove with the bus of the shotgun and just yep. a, a shower of you know nasty bits goes flying everywhere. And in the UK version, they just showed it once and then in the full one, he hits it again, doesn't he? And it, again, it's just... Let's make every single gory bit like even gorier. That's that's the way it felt when you first saw it. The rape by tree, incidentally, folks, uh, I I think is a notably absurd sequence in a film, which takes absurdity to the umpteenth degree. But even Raimi admits that he was slightly wrong to have done that. And if you look at it, it, it doesn't fit in. It just does not. Most of the violence in it, although that there are some, you know sexual moments to it i mean if you look at the headless <laughs> what a great conversation this is linda's, head, <laughs> linda's headless corpse is a uh, writhing on top of ash and there's a yep. shot of the legs and it, you know it, there's something going on there isn't it you can't help but think that at the time when you're watching it but um the, the rape by tree doesn't seem to make any sense the trees why the hell would it do that you know i don't know it, it, it's there and it's weird incidentally um ellen sandwise uh, on the on this disc and she's probably said it elsewhere as well, for that matter. It wasn't the story didn't seem new to me. She still claims that that was done post production. The trees were um, attacking her. Her legs got pulled apart. The vines were creeping up between her thighs. But the actual tree that makes such an impact on her, you know, she didn't know about that until afterwards. You know, when um, she saw the premiere with her mum. But that she gets <laughs> caught out on on another Q and A session on the disc somewhere. When she talks about the, the entire sequence, and 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 oh, that's what it is. That montage, the almost an, an hour and ten minutes long montage of tales from the cutting room floor, which shows the film from different angles. The bloody sequence is in that. Now that's from the time, so it definitely happened on the day. They definitely put that in there, you know. So I think she's talking out of a proverbial. What what what's a tree rape between friends? <laughs> Sorry, I was just going out, going out on a limb there. Oh, dear. please leave! Uh, oh, <laughs> just branched out. I've only just twigged what you've done. Hey, it's even better again. Yeah. Is it your favourite of the trilogy, though? Ah, is another poll coming up here? Do you think? Possibly. Um, I, I was just wondering. Do you know but what? They're very I, different I, films. They're very I, different I, films. I really again. don't know. Army Darkness certainly isn't. Army Darkness is um, a hell of a slapdash film for me. I, don't get me wrong. I like the film. I, I can have a great time watching it, but I'll only watch half of it. Once once the, the Army of the Dead have actually risen, I, I'm kind of out of there, to be honest. I'm not, not that interested in it. It's I've the three stooges, preferred... basically, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's slapstick. Yeah. You've lost the horror. That's that's what you've done. The it first depends which version what... you watch as well, isn't it? Well, yeah, again. Because there's three or four of them. And well, even that too, of course, it's just a remake of the first movie. It's great to have these extra people in there because it means a bit more carnage taking place. The film is infinitely better when it's just Ash on his own battling the undead. It's unbelievably creepy 
and funny at the same time. And my, my favourite sequence in the entire trilogy, by the way, is Extreme Evil Dead 2. And that's where he, he sits on the chair, the chair collapses, and all the, um, the stuffed animals and the, the furniture, and, furniture and fixtures and fittings... Fitting, God, what is wrong with my gob? The furniture, the fixtures and fittings start to laugh at him. And yeah. then he just turns around to the camera with that most manic look upon his face and bursts out laughing himself hysterically. Because what else are you going to do? He's completely trapped in this horrible limbo. And, and I just love, love that sequence. Tremendously well done. And that, that's where the, the films, they skirt this you know, bizarre tightrope between horror and humour. Very few manage to do that. American Werewolf does it. The Howling does it. A few notable others. But Evil Dead, the first movie, there's shades of humour there. It's blackly humorous anyway, just the whole concept of it. But it plays it mainly straight, you know, this is serious horror, this is nasty. And it is. Evil Dead 2, if you can take a hand, cut your own hand off and it runs away from you and then get, flips you to bed and even, even swears at you. If you listen closely, you listen to that sequence where it's in the air. It's, put, it's, it's walked into the air, the mousetrap, and Ash starts laughing at it. I can't quote what it says here now because it must be cut out, but listen to what it says on the soundtrack. <laughs> and even the book that shows up, A Farewell to Arms. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so many in-jokes in there as well. It's, it's great. It's just, just a, they're having fun with it. And why the hell not, you know? Okay, so moving on from The Evil Dead, um, we're going to take a completely different direction here. Mark's going to look at a film which is about three or four different films all cut together with no storyline, doesn't make any sense, yet he thinks it's a good film. Shogun Assassin. Right, well, I'm going to correct you there, Phil. It's not three or four different films. That's a little bit unfair. It's just two films butchered into one. And it is from one video nasty to another. I mean, this one was banned upon a VHS release in the UK. It's basically, well, say small-time director, Robert Houston. No one's ever really going to know much of his works. He's recently um, done a few decent documentaries, I believe, but... He and David Weissman, I believe it's pronounced, basically secured the rights from Toho for about $50,000 to the first two of the Lone Wolf and Cub films, which are Chanbara films, basically Japanese sword-fighting epics, and decided that they were going to cut about 10 minutes out of the first, about I think it's about 70 minutes out of the second, put them both together, dub them and throw on an absolutely insane synth soundtrack and basically try and keep in as much violence as humanly possible. Now, fans of the original series tend to dislike this. They they don't really appreciate it being put in box sets along with the original films because they feel that directors such as uh, Kenji Misumi shouldn't really be placed in the same uh, box set as what they consider to be essentially a couple of hacks but it it has its own charm if you can look past you know all of the problems that it has and the fact that it's called shogun assassin and a shogun is never actually killed that he's not really an assassin and that it, it does the classic 80s trick of talking about ninjas constantly as if they were around every corner then it's just damn good fun it has some of the best sword play kenji masumi's direction and the cinematography is still basically there all that's happened is they've cut around it to try and make a story that's palatable and that can be told in about 85 minutes let's say banned in the uk but it's they managed to utilize 
um, a giant Moog synthesizer to make a soundtrack that is iconic and, in my view, up there with uh, Snake and Eagle's Shadow in terms of synth period fun, Eastern kind of kung fu samurai fun. And it has its own charm. It has a certain charisma. It's it's coming more to prominence in recent times thanks to the re-emergence uh, re of Grindhouse and the like, and it's been championed by Samuel L. Jackson and Tarantino showed a clip of it in at the end of Kill Bill 2. And so it's it's never going to strike a chord with uh, the intelligentsia who like to overplay the importance of Japanese Chambara cinema. But it is an important film in terms of making a breakthrough in the West of decent um, genre directors. You know, some people really, really do find it startlingly distasteful that what has essentially happened is two Americans have just decided, here are some great films from Japan. Let's buy the rights for them. We'll get them on the cheap. I believe Columbia had uh, already released, I think it was the fourth in the series. It's set on one of the, the commentary tracks, in fact, on this Blu-ray. And they'd just done a, a basic dub, kind of um, sticking with the central storyline, but just dubbed over it. So none of the lip movement really matched. So it was in the the lo-fi kind of kung fu chop socky flick style where where nothing really synchronizes and it it gets more of a laugh value but what what these what um robert houston did was um he hired uh deaf lip readers to try and sync up dialogue that would match what the original japanese actors lips were doing at the time and so it that in fact causes some of the some of the best lines and some of the most memorable you know, at the end of saying that um, someone's basically killed him, to to put in the line "it's" and then a pause and then ridiculous. You don't oh, expect bit, yeah. to see. Yeah, you don't expect to see someone called a master of death saying something is ridiculous on his deathbed. Uh, it it's got so many great lines. They will pay with rivers of blood, and it matches the movement of the mouth perfectly. The master of death, that guy with the uh, the, the wicker basket on his head. The stuff that uh, John Carpenter riffed on with Big Trouble in Little China. And he says something about, he, he's waxing lyrical about the sound of the blood spraying out of someone's slashed throat. And, he's, and he's, as you said before, he said, to hear it from my own throat is ridiculous. <laughs> it is bizarre, isn't it? But it's great, great, great good fun. I remember the movie quite a lot, quite well. It's great. And it's also got a surprisingly good narration from, it, it, it was only the illustrator's son. They got seven-year-old, Gibran Evans, just to, he apparently struggled with many of the lines and many of the kind of uh, Japanese phrases and the like, but it's it's far more earnest than than the usual style, which is to get an adult woman to do a child's voice, mm. and it, it's it it comes across extremely well on this Blu-ray, with um, wait for it, uh, linear PCM uh, 2.0. Uh, and it really does come across with it's it's got um it stays quite low and so as the child's always basically whispering it, it's never really enunciated well he's he's never projecting his voice and so it, it was always likely to struggle and it has done on some some of the releases and it this has had some pretty poor releases so very much like Evil Dead you know it's spent many years in the wilderness but it it comes to the fore on the on this track and the 
the sound, uh, the score in particular is another great reason to pick up this Blu-ray because it, it, it's probably my favorite all time. Wow. Come on. You, you've got to love that. The, the Moog synthesizer. I do. God, no, I'm a massive fan of it. Yeah. I mean, God, I'm, I'm the, I'm the guy who champions the scores of John Carpenter so often. And uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's vastly different from uh, the original movies, obviously. But the, the film, as you as you say, it's got a charm of its own. I encountered the, these movies first via Shogun Assassin, as most people probably in this country probably would have done. And again, it was on that DPP list. It was renowned. It was notorious. It was just gore plenty. But it, you know, I would think I'd be at the same sort of age, eleven, twelve, when I saw that the first time. And you know. It gave you a taste for Asian cinema, for that kind. Of, you'd seen nothing like that. I know I hadn't. You wanted the gore, but it was so beautifully done. Um, the fight choreography, the bizarreness. That, that that poor guy. You know, I forget what his name is now. And they tell him try and leave the room, and he leaps up onto <laughs> the ceiling, and then it just gets hacked to pieces. It's just, it's phenomenal stuff. I had a great time with it. Of course, I've since caught up with the the, uh, the full movies and. Uh, You've got to have them as well. But this, this is like the best of both worlds, isn't it? If you haven't got all the time to watch them all, just watch Shogun Assassin. It's all the best bits, you know, with a fantastic soundtrack as well. So what, what the, the quality of this Blu-ray is is pretty good then, yeah, you'd say? The quality of this Blu-ray is, yeah, very good. I mean, obviously, in comparison to, to a, a lot of discs and certainly more modern fare, it looks, <laughs> well, fairly terrible. But... If you go back, I mean, I've, I've owned this probably like most fans since kind of copied VHS through when it finally came out, bearing the slogan that it was the film that was, you know, too gory to see and the like, and, you know, through the Vipco DVDs and the like. And what oh, they've done good is... Good old that, Oh, yes. Fantastic. <laughs> but no, they, they've basically gone back to, to what they call pristine prints. Animago call them pristine prints. They're not pristine prints. I mean, anything that still contains scratches and hairs on are never going to be considered pristine, but they're good. They're certainly good prints. And what they've gone gone and done is they've got the prints for the two, the first two films in the series, i.e. the original Sword of Vengeance and Baby Carter of the River Sticks, and they've gone back and matched it up edit for edit just with the better prints. And so they've had to go back and completely redo them. And other than there are two, and I think it's a total of about eight seconds, uh, stock footage shots that they couldn't find. And they they do, to be fair, look absolutely horrendous. I mean, there's stair-stepping all the way down the sides of, um, I think it was supposed to be a castle. Uh, I forget the name of it. But mm. other than that, it, it's it's fantastic. And as you alluded to with the, the effects on Evil Dead and seeing more things and more mistakes in high def, on this you can see the weaves that are of the wigs in the yeah. close-ups, you can see the mesh that um, uh, the Shogun, or as he was in the original, um, Retsudo Yagyu, his eyebrows, the mad eyebrows, and you can see the mesh material so evidently. <laughs> but but that's, all, that's kind of all part of the fun. And now the, the blood, the strange thing is the blood, it's got far more of a, a theatrical kind of goopy look to it. As you'd expect, it, there always was in those kind of old-fashioned films that used copious amounts of blood. They always often had a slight orangey tinge to them, you know, mm. uh, just to try and make it look vibrant. 
And now yeah. when you see it here, it does look a bit like paint in certain scenes. But, you know, that's what you get with a high-def image. It, you know, I doubt it was ever supposed to, you know, look quite as good as this on a home format. No, well, it wasn't made with that in mind at all, was it? So you've got to expect these sort of things with um, low-budget and low-grade early movies. You know, it's part and parcel again. Oh, yeah, and you- as you said, I mean... For all those who, who don't particularly like it, the simple fact is that most people, and you know, you said it, and myself included, uh, came to the Lone Wolf and Cub series, and you know, Chenbara Cinema, and you know, Zatoichi, and Hanzo the Razor, and stuff like that, through Shogun Assassin. Maybe it was just the publicity from you know, the thrill of watching something that was banned and too gory for the Home Office to allow you to watch. That's exactly but, it. <laughs> but it, it has sold the you know the idea of Japanese samurai cinema to so many people and it has been a gateway film and the, the the simple fact is that for half the time that's actually what sells the lone wolf and cub box sets the inclusion of you know a new version of shogun assassin <laughs> yeah. yeah one for the fans yeah yeah exactly bizarre the, the cult film there is the is the, the cobbled together version rather than the originals that's the one that's got more international um kudos and value in a sort of quirky way. Oh, definitely. And I, th- I think actually the majority of that is down to, uh, as I said, you know, you can get more violent films, uh, well, certainly not with as much as high a body count, but you can get certainly as brutal samurai epics out there. But it's the voiceover. It's it's fantastic. And that mixed with, with the, the synth-laden score, it just makes it such a strange kind of kitsch beast and this this weird mix, this juxtaposition of this a soundtrack that you'd expect to hear coming out of you know seeing like the Vista from Blade Runner, but against feudal Japan, it, it just seems odd, but somehow <laughs> it works magnificently. <laughs> and so don't bother hiding in the sand when the masses of death are around. Oh no, no, because they're well, going to find you. That's again, you know, there's just um, it's the great line. I forget what what the line was, but when he says um. The the child, Daigoro, says at night they listen out for ninjas, but they never make a sound. You know, it it, it makes no sense, but it's mm-hmm. a good line. You know, the child counts how many ninjas his father's killing and then has to count how many more that, that makes on a given day on his fingers. You know, it's it's just, it's low-rent fun, but for all those who, who pretend that, in fact, the original series, as great as the cinematography was and as much as I love them, I've said in the, in the written review, any film that has a cart that has spikes that shoot out of its wheels is never going to be considered high art. You know, this isn't Urzu or Kurosawa we're talking about here. This was genre cinema. You know, Misumi may have been a master of the genre, but they threw in as much gore and bloodshed as they could to try and just draw a crowd you know the studio needed God, money them. at the time very practical to have um, a cart that has spikes and swords and weapons concealed in it because imagine going around asda how wonderful would that be oh my god there's 40 people in the queue <laughs> not anymore so phil what do you think you sold on it nope it sounds like a- <laughs> sounds like a load of crap to me but never mind <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're fast Mark, 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 running Mark, out of time. Sit down. You can't reach him where you are. <laughs> Not even with I've that I've just bandage. got the original series, actually, the original TV series on DVD. That's fantastic as well. Saddle. Okay, so let's move on. 
<laughs> and uh, we've got one final film from the 80s, Escape from New York, and Chris is going to tell us Yay, all about it. Escape from New York. Come on, we all love this one as well. Whereas The Evil Dead was a cult classic, which actually influenced a hell of a lot of things. This was a cult classic that didn't influence anything at all, really, let's be honest. This just came out, John Carpenter, most audacious um, plot he's ever come up with, really. You know, it's 1997, New York has now become a maximum security penitentiary. The whole island is walled off, sort of thing. And everyone was thought, why not just destroy the bridges? You know, the bridges are mined. Why not just take the bridges out altogether? You know, they fly new prisoners in, don't they? So it doesn't really make much odds. But anyway, President's plane has um, very conveniently crash-landed into um, the city itself. Terrorists were on board, and they tried to take the president out. He survived in his little escape pod. Donald, president Donald Pleasance, of all people, is now um, captured by the Duke of New York, Isaac Hayes, the soul master, um, and his cronies who rule the joint. And they want amnesty for all prisoners, um, or they're going to cut him into little tiny pieces. Now, very inconvenient because um, America, China, and the Soviet Union are all engaged in World War III. And in the president's briefcase happens to be a tape about nuclear fusion, which is going to save... Well, not save the world, but pull the world back from the, the brink of oblivion because obviously this is a weapon that the Yanks have got and they're just basically saying, you know, if you don't calm down and leave us alone, we're going to use this on your asses. So that tape needs to get to the Hartford Summit in time to save the world. Oops, president's stuck in the prison, this hellish prison. What are we going to do? How are we going to get him out? Let's choose a one-eyed, uh, very embittered ex-war hero decorated war hero who's now turned to a life of crime who just happens to have been captured and is about to be sent to the prison anyway. Enter Kurt Russell doing one of the best uh, Clint Eastwood impersonations ever as Snake Plissken, uh, World War Three hero, uh, dressed most bizarrely. I remember when I saw this the first time and I thought, I want to look like him. Oh, I want that sleeveless black top with this bizarre zips in the shoulders what the hell is the point of zips all across the shoulders when you've got no sleeves it's just ridiculous urban camouflage kecks cracking pair of boots on him with like studs around him oh man he looks so cool long hair so he's got the hippie the hippie sort of vogue bit of John Carpenter there John Carpenter's always had long hair so he's used his screen alter ego which has always been Kurt Russell keep your hair keep your hair Kurt grow it long and I, I can look at the screen and pretend you're me running around and an eye patch you never thought that'd be cool did you and also makes it cool, makes it sexy. So he's got to go in there. But he's a crafty bugger, is our snake. You know, why should I go in and save save you? I don't give a... Well, as he says quite a lot, I don't give a F-bomb about your, your war or your president. I've done my bit. You've caught me. Ah, balls to you. But Lee Van Cleef, the excellent Lee Van Cleef, sort of reprising his, his badass attitude of you know, the Westerns, the Spaghettis, He's working for the, the government. He's police commissioner. He sends these people into the prison. But, you know, his heart's not really in that. You can tell that. He's a war hero as well. He's a decorated special forces veteran. You know, he sees a kind of, you know, you know kindred spirit in Snake. But he's going to give Snake a chance. You go in there, you get him out, I'll give you full pardon for all the crimes you committed on US soil. But because he knows how crafty this guy is, there's another little trick. We're going to inject you. Oh, don't worry. It's a 24-hour-long antivirus thing. You know, you're not going to... You won't catch a cold while you're in there. You keep tip-top fitness. Oh, no, it isn't. It's two microscopic capsules lodged in your arteries. And in 24 hours, they're going to explode and 
open up both your arteries and you'll be dead. Oh, Snake, you've got to go in there, man. You've got to go and get the president. So Snake goes in, encounters all sorts of lowlifes and, you know, ne'er-do-wells. Lots of scrapes, lots of set-piece action. Um, catches the president. I mean, look, everyone knows this movie, so it's no spoiler, really, to say he's going to get the president out. And a lot of good people are going to die in the process of doing it. Um, riveting ending, you know, can he get out just in time before those capsules go? And he's being chased by all and sundry. Great stuff. The film is pure escapist, cartoonic, comic book fantasy. You've got to look back at it now as a, as a kind of alternate history because 1987 has come and gone and, you know, New York is still there. But and it's not a prison. But how quirky was it to have, you know, how prescient. You've got a plane crashing into, you know, New York City. Devastation. You've got a ground zero there. Snake has to land his, uh, his glider on top of the World Trade Center. So you've got the nostalgic image of the Twin Towers are still there. Very creepy when you think about it, how, the, how, how history has uh, mimicked elements of this movie and not in the way that John Carman's ever thought it would happen. But uh, it's really audacious. It's a really crafty sort of plot. It's sticking the finger up at the man. It's, it's poking fun at what could be a police state, a fascist um, you know, um, dictatorship running America, uh, and you've got the staunch anti-hero in, in, in Snake, Snake Plissken. And Kurt Russell was born to play this part. Uh, he's... And the, the thing about it is, you know, when I, was, when I was a kid, I saw this movie, I wanted to be Snake. Snake's, a, you know, he beats everybody up. He's got some cracking weaponry on him. Although, why the hell you put a telescopic sight on a Magnum 357? It's just, it's totally beyond me. They even put one on his Ingram submachine gun. You can't use a telescopic sight on these kind of weapons. It he's just only got one eye. He's got no depth perception. But you can't hold a submachine gun to your head and look down. You're going to knock your own head off. It doesn't Maybe that's make... how he lost the eye. Ah! <laughs> ah! Good point. <laughs> how dare you? Um, <laughs> how dare you ruin, ruin my favourite movie? Uh, yeah, but he's a clumsy sod. Basically, he can't achieve anything without the help of the people he meets in there. Ernest Borgnine as cabbie. You've got uh, Adrienne Barbeau, who was married to um, John Carpenter at the time. Absolutely luscious with her gypsy locks and her mega, mega cleavage. There's a couple of Twin Towers that are still standing. I hasten to add. Um, and Harry Dean Stanton, great character actors you've got here. As Brain, who, who knows Snake from a previous job that went wrong, and Brain's ended up in there, and he's the Duke's sort of, you know, he's his go-to guy for, you know, manufacturing things and, and sorting things out for him. And, you know, Donald Pleasance, he'd been in Halloween 1 and 2. He'd already proved to John Carpenter that the two of them could get on really well. And this is a top-flight actor, you know, he's playing the... The U.S. president. He starts off. He's, he's a complete, you know, authoritarian, you know, horrific swine. Basically, ends up in there, and you see him as a simpering wreck who's like wetting his pants at every moment. He's captured by these gypsies. You know, he's used as target practice. They hack his finger off. It's, there's all sorts of fun taking place in there, but Snake can't do a damn thing without someone else helping him. You know, he, he, he misjudges virtually everything. He's a, cl- he's a classically bizarre hero because he just can't function without people helping him. And yet he comes away. And you, you remember, you go up against this movie thinking, like, Snake, he's the man. He can take care of anything. He can handle any situation. Well, he basically can't. But he's still uber cool. Running around this nightmarish, uh, desolate waste, wasteland of a, of, of, you know, of, of a city, um, 
gunning down all sorts of like bizarre weirdos and freaks. You, you've got all Carpenter's supporting, usual supporting cast that are in there playing these bit parts. Very colourful movie. Well, I say, for color, I say colourful, it's colourful in, um, in story, but the film itself is one of the darkest movies ever made. It's set, it's set predominantly at night. So you've got virtually, you know, there's no, there's no lighting in New York. So it's a very shadow draped, noirish kind of landscape that he's, you know, rampaging through. You've got the famous sequence where he's put in a gladiatorial arena in Madison Square Garden. He has to fight this uh, massive man mountain called Slag. First of all, they fight with baseball bats. Then they fight with spiked baseball bats and bin lids as shields. Absolutely awesome, awesome stuff. Carpenter soundtrack. We've talked about synthesized soundtracks before, Moogs and all that sort of stuff. This is one of the classic, classic movie synthesized scores. Again, it's it's John Carpenter and his usual collaborator, Alan Howarth. Uh, it is threadbare. It is minimal. It is a, a heartbeat, basically. It is just metronomic, but it's so powerful, so catchy, so cool that you know you're humming it for years afterwards. Uh, it's just just tremendous stuff. So this has had you know a few releases as well uh, across the, the home video spectrum. It was a great laser disc as well. Uh, the UK Blu-ray release of this, as I'm sure many people listening to this right now are painfully aware, was a travesty. Color boosted, black crushing, edge enhancements, DNR looked atrocious. It looked absolutely awful. I, I I couldn't sit through the full movie at all. So we had high hopes. Of, well, you really were pinning your hopes on MGM getting this one out and you know doing the film justice. Early word suggested it, it it looked good. Then well, the word came through that it was horribly dark and detail wasn't there. Finally, my copy turned up and uh, I was very pleasantly surprised by it. Yes, the film is very dark. It, it, you can't get around that. Is there any black crush issues? Is it too dark? Are we losing detail? I don't think we are. I think the darkness is, is just about right. I've seen this film in every possible medium. I've seen it in flicks when it first came out. Uh, although I'm not going to sit here and say that I remember how it looked back then. You know, I was definitely 12 when I saw it when it came out. I even went down to it. Uh, my dad took me to London to see the movie. And it, it blew me away. It was the possibly the film means a lot to me for various reasons. Snake's so cool. I love the music. I love just love the story. But it was about the only time he says wistfully that me and me dad ever really got on, and we certainly haven't done since. And but one thing we can agree on is that Snake is uber cool, and the film is a a, a classic of its kind. The problem with this, you've got John Car John Carpenter's faved uh, um, anamorphic lenses. Dean Cundy again is regular um, DOP. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, with, with anamorphic lenses, great vistas you can create with it. And Carmenter and Cundy are superb at this. But I don't see, I don't think I've seen better urban widescreen um, shots that have been used, as, as you'll find in this movie. But a lot of it is very soft. So you're going to have a central image or the main object of the, of the frame is going to be fairly well detailed, very clear. But off to the sides, you know, it's a, it can be blared and indistinct. You know, it's par for the course. This is the way it's going to look. So people come into this and go, oh, there's no detail there. It's very soft. You know, well, yeah, it is. That's how it's going to be. One thing I will say, I kind of expected it to be more facial texture in the close-ups and that, uh, and there really isn't. But this is still by far the best version that I've seen of it. You've got a, a DTS HD soundtrack on it, uh, which is tremendous. It's mainly frontally based. But you've got some rear support. You've got helicopters zipping about here, there. You've got a few... There's a great explosion at one stage on the, on the bridge. 
and uh, the explosion sort of rattles around behind you and from rear left to rear right you get a scattering of debris which i thought was quite nice quite nicely done it drops the ball here the release because there's no extras whatsoever with this you have a two disc set but the second disc is a dvd oh joy just what you wanted to go alongside all those other dvds you've already got of it uh, but no commentary track no making of no retrospectives no nothing complete bare bones it's that is an absolute crime but for, you know you want the film on the high def you've got to go for this one it is it is it's brilliant the image is as best as you're going to see it i think for quite some time unless they do you know an all-out lavish restoration of it which i can't really see ever taking place and how much more could it could they improve on it i'm, I'm not saying you could that much if i'm honest with you uh, incidentally I, I scoured I scoured every military shop and every army surplus trying to get those keks um, before those keks became the fashion which they are now. You know, nighttime distressed urban camouflage. But of course, Carpenter had just you know cobbled them together. You know, a bit of tie dyeing, you know, as it were. Let's just have some bizarre lightning strikes, like lightning bolts on his keks. So my mum made me a pair. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mum. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, I lost a lot of friends over those kecks, actually, I can say. But uh, I, I felt cool. <laughs> yeah, so Escape from New York. Go get it. I prefer okay. the sequel. Oh, shut up, oh. Mark. You... <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, so that kind of wraps up our podcast for this month. Uh, we've definitely run out of time now. Um, so my thanks to Chris, Simon and Mark for tonight's podcast. Thank you, guys. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, Cheers Phil. Phil. So if you've got any queries, comments or suggestions, you can either send us an email to podcast at avforums.com or leave your feedback under this podcast in the podcast forum. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another movies podcast. And until then... Goodbye! That's all you gotta do. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.